Hello there and welcome back to a new session from the Divine Healing Teaching Series. Today we are still in chapter 6 where we talk about how to believe and we left off on our previous session in sub-chapter 10 where we were talking about the importance of being violent in the spirit. And if you remember, we were defining violence in the spirit with three points. It meant having a strong conviction. The second one was having an anger, developing an anger against negative situations, against sickness, against lack, against the kingdom of darkness. And the third point was having a tenacity to pull, to follow through, to go all the way until you see the results happening in your life. And if you remember, we left off in the second point where we were talking about having an anger against negative situations. And we read Deuteronomy 28 where we, we've seen how God named and called sickness a curse, a punishment. He called lack and poverty a curse. And in Christ, the moment we came in Christ, we're no longer under curse. We're no longer, uh, curse and punishment is illegal in our lives. The moment we came in Christ, we became sons and daughters of the Almighty God, the devil's masters and people's servants. We love people, we serve people because God loved us so much that he gave his only son, but we hate darkness we hate the devil we hate sickness we hate lack and poverty and today we're continuing with the second point where we we talk about the need of the importance of developing a holy anger a holy hate if you want towards sickness toward negative situations that come from the devil and you know the devil works with sickness in the same way he works with sin in our life how does the devil work with sin in our lives? What does he do to make us sin more? What did he do with Jesus? What does he do with us? He tempts us all the time. He is the tempter. He tempted Jesus and he tempts us all the time. If he wants to make us sin, he will bring temptations in our way. Now question, whenever you've been tempted, have you already sinned? just by going through a temptation? No, of course not. When does that temptation become sin? When we start thinking about it, we begin acting on it, when we start submitting ourselves to the temptation. That temptation then gives birth to sin. But just that simply seeing and feeling and seeing a temptation coming our way doesn't mean that we already sinned. Only when we linger on it, we think about it, we act on it, we submit to it slowly, then that temptation gives birth to sin. And the devil works the same way with sickness. Symptoms are to sickness what temptations are to sin. That's how he works with sickness. In order to get us sick, the devil will have to get our permission to get us to accept that sickness. In the same way, he, he needs our permission for us to sin, to accept the sin. He just tempts us, but it's us who accept that temptation or not. And he does the same way with sickness through symptoms. 
The same way we accept temptation to commit sin, we will have to accept the symptoms in order to become sick. The problem is that most people know they have to resist sin and temptation, but when symptoms of sickness come their way in their body, they just accept it and invite it right over. That's how most Christians do. They say something like, oh, I'm just sick. I am sick. And by saying that, they submitted themselves, they accepted it, they accepted the symptoms, and at that moment, they gave birth to sickness. When you accept the symptoms that you feel in your body and you start talking about uh, that sickness as it is yours, I am sick, that's the moment you actually become sick because by saying that, you have accepted sickness in your life. What the devil brought your way. And we have to drastically, radically refuse it. And we can by our words, by the faith in our hearts. Can the devil force us to sin ever? No, of course not. Can the devil make us do anything? The good news is that just like the devil cannot force us to sin, he cannot force us to be sick. He cannot force you to be sick. You need to accept it and give him your permission in order for you to become sick. We give permission to sickness by accepting the symptom. That is why we need to become violent again. As I mentioned before, we need to become violent against the devil and against what the devil throws our way. Temptations, symptoms of sickness and to not accept it. And we have to learn to resist those symptoms and declare the word of God in the middle of the symptoms, in the middle of pain that you feel in your body. Declare the word of God and refuse those symptoms. Refuse that sickness. Because it's easier to get rid of a sickness in the beginning stages when you feel the symptoms, but it becomes harder to get it out after the sickness installed itself in your body. People say usually, why did God allow this? Why did God allow that sickness or tragedy in my life? You hear people and Christians saying that all the time. Here is the truth. And I said it before, God is not allowing anything. And I'll say it again. God is not allowing anything in your life. No, no sickness, no tragedies. We are the ones that allow those things to come into our life. And it may be hard and difficult for you to accept that. But that's the truth. It is not God allowing that sickness in your body. But you are, I am accepting and allowing those sicknesses to come in my way, in my body, in my life. And in the kingdom of God, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 19. And if you have your Bibles ready, let's read Matthew 16, 19. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. But you are welcome to use any English translation you have available. It says this. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see this first, what Jesus says, whatever you bind and whatever you loose, you and me, that's what will apply also in heaven. That will be agreed also in heaven. What do we do with keys normally? We lock and open. We lock doors and open doors. 
And whatever we allow here on earth will have to be allowed in the spirit realm. That's the kind of power that God has given us after the cross. Whatever you forbid here on earth will have to be forbidden in the spirit realm. So if sickness got into your body, it is not that God allowed it, but we here allowed it. That's the truth. We allowed sickness to come into our body. And in the spirit realm, God has to allow it because that's what he decided. That's, what the, that's the kind of power and authority and dominion that he gave to man. So if we bind or loose, and if we, or if we talk loose, with our mouth here on earth, God has to allow those things to happen also in heaven, to agree with what's happening in the, on the earth. The devil gets the permission from us, not from God. We give it to him whenever we speak loosely, whenever we accept the symptoms. The devil works only by permission. He needs our permission to make us poor, sick and depressed and i'll say it to your person he needs your permission to make you poor sick and depressed Can, do you realize this this is so powerful he cannot force you to be depressed somewhere you chose and gave him permission for depression in your life this message these things that i'm talking with you can be both condemning but also full of hope because you can realize, you realize now that you can do something about your situation. It's not up to God. It's not like waiting ambiguously and confusing uh, for uh, I don't know how long. But you can take attitude today. You can take a stand today. If you allow sickness in your life, if you allow depression, lack, poverty in your life, you can start saying no more. I refuse it. It's, it's, it's on you. And whatever you refuse, whatever you bind, God will have to bind in the spiritual realm. Amen? So how does the devil get our permission? Of course, we're not going to just give it to him consciously, right? He knows how to deceive us to obtain permission even without us knowing about it. That's the deceit. That's how he does it. He, he uh, gets our permission without us realizing that we gave it to him. The number one way to get our permission is through our words. That's how he gets our permission. When we talk out of our heart and we give permission, we talk loosely and we say words that contradict the word of God. Mark eleven twenty three 23 says that you will have what you say. Whatever you say will come to pass into your life. Read it in Mark eleven twenty three. Whatever I say, it will come to pass. This is how we exercise authority, the authority that Jesus Christ gave us. We give permission through our words. That's why it's important to be careful what we talk. To be careful what we put in our hearts. So because out of our out of the abundance of our hearts, the mouth speaks. And whatever you speak, you will speak with belief. Because if it comes out of your heart, it comes with conviction. That's what you're convinced of. That's what you believe. So if you talk negatively, that talk is full of power, full of energy, and actually has the power to bring and to attract into your life whatever you speak and whatever you declare. And you know people say easy things like this. 
If I go in a room and there's a virus there, I will surely get it. Did you hear that? So many people declare these kinds of things like it's, like it's nothing. Oh, if, if there's a flu there, I, I'm not going there. I'm not touching that because I'm a gay. I will get it for sure. Why do they say those words? Because they had past experiences where they faced that flu or that virus and they didn't know how the devil works. They accepted the symptoms. They got sick and that created a marker in their mind, a negative experience that will always tell them, don't touch that because you'll get sick. And then you start talking it and you produce it in your life in a repeated way. If you don't realize the devil's strategy, so don't open the door to the devil. Don't give him permission through your words. You use your, your words as a key to open doors. So when you say, I'll get that virus, you use your key that God has given you to open the door to him, to sickness, to that virus into your life. We are bombarded everywhere we go. We are bombarded every day by unbelief and death all around us, through our loved ones, through shows, through TV, through movies, even the most innocent ones. They are full of unbelief and spiritual death. That's the truth. And that, that unbelief gets into our heart. And if we expose ourselves to those for long enough, it gets into our heart. And then from the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks and gives permission. And the strategy of the devil is to get us exposed to hear, to see death, to see unbelief, sickness, lack, panic, all kind of junk. This way it gets into our heart, that fear, exactly like the word does. That's why it's so important intentionally to put the word into our hearts and not to expose ourselves, ourselves to all the junk that comes from the world, to all the unbelief and death, because that will get into our hearts and that will produce words. And those words will produce uh, negative situations in our life and will continue to produce them. Now, one more important thing about permission. We give permission through our words that we speak, as I mentioned, but also... The words that somebody else speak to us, they also give permission because authority is exercised with words. So it's not only us that give permission through our words, but there can be someone else that speaks something to us and they, those words can give permission to something to come in our lives. Let's read Isaiah 54 verse 17 where it says this. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. See, every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. This verse says that when a word is raised against you in judgment, you have to condemn it. If you don't condemn that word, it becomes a weapon formed against you. And let me give you an example. You go to the doctor and the doctor starts checking, as you know, asking you questions and your history, what, uh, uh, if your parents were sick of something. You know, when you go to a medical checkup, if your grandfather or father or brother had cancer, let me tell you that you have probably 85% chance to get it as well. And we hear this kind of things all the time from the doctors. At that moment, 
when the doctor says that and uh, uh, makes that statement about you, the doctor is speaking a word of judgment against you. What would most people do in that case when the doctor says that, that statement? That if your grandfather and father or mother or brother had cancer, you have 85% chances to get that cancer. What do most people do in that situation? They listen to it and don't say anything about it. And don't say anything to it. And at that moment, it will become a weapon formed against you. If you're quiet, if you keep silent, that judgment of the doctor becomes a weapon against you. You have the responsibility to cancel that word that was said by the doctor. And you can do it in a nice way. You can say something like, thank you, doctor, but no thank you. I know you are doing your job and I appreciate it, but I live under a different law. God lives in me. I'm a child of God and he keeps me in good health. And you have a way also to testify to him the gospel and to talk about your God. But you have to say something. Don't be quiet about it. You might say, oh, I will not say anything to not offend anybody. But inside I will not accept it because we don't want to offend. We don't want to speak up. But inside I will not accept it. If you don't say anything by default, you will accept it. You have to say something to cancel that word that was pronounced as judgment against you. In the Garden of Eden, when Eve was tempted, Adam was near her and didn't say anything. If you remember in Genesis, by doing nothing, he gave authority to the devil. And in Luke 4, 6, when the devil tempted Jesus, he told him that he would give him all dominion and glory, if you remember. Because it was handed down to him. By whom? By Adam. Because Adam didn't say anything. And he just went along with the sin and gave authority to the devil. So by saying nothing, you accept that, that word of judgment that was pronounced against you as a weapon to produce in your life negative situations. So you have to take a stand and speak up. The word of God. And I remember my mom was telling me a story a few years back when one of my brothers was sick and they took him to the doctor. And the doctor said that my brother had leukemia and he has just a few more weeks or days, I don't know, to live and he will die. You know what my mom did and my parents, with the knowledge that they have at that moment, uh, they had at that moment, they said, Thank you, doctor, but no thank you. My son will live. He will not die, but he will live and he will testify of the power of God. And they went back home and they refused to listen to that doctor. And my brother lives even today. He was healed. If he had leukemia, he was healed. But I think I, I strongly think that leukemia was not there. But when the doctor spoke, if my parents would, would uh, had accepted that statement, I'm almost 100% sure that leukemia would have been produced in his body at that moment. But they refused it and said, no, we live under a different law. He is, my, my, my son is well, he's healthy, and he is healthy and living today. Amen? So that's our responsibility to take a stand and to say no. And we do that with our words. Our words are the sword of the Spirit. And I have a, a series coming about the sword of the Spirit. Our words are the sword of the Spirit, the, the double-edged sword of the Word of God. Amen? So there's no new, neutral place in the kingdom of God. There's no middle ground. It doesn't exist. 
We have to learn to rise up on the inside, stand up on the inside and speak out and say no. Because by remaining passive and silent, we give permission to the devil. And we don't want to do that. Be violent against him. Say no. With even loud, not, not quiet. Don't be quiet about it. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 27, where it says this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. See the context of this verse? Paul is quoting here Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, where the context is to be angry and disturbed against injustice and lies and vanity. There is a holy anger. Jesus was angry when he cast out the money changes from the temple with wives. And he didn't sin by being angry. He used that holy anger and he did something for God. So anger can be holy, can be righteous when it's towards darkness, when it's towards injustice, towards negative situations. And see here what the, this passage encourages us to do. Be angry and do not sin. And do not give any place to the devil. Be angry against the devil. Amen. Mark chapter 3 verses 4 to 5 says this. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the men, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as, a, as whole as the other. It was an anger against evil. It says here that Jesus looked around with anger, with grief. And then he commanded that man to stretch out his hand. His anger was against evil. And in Matthew 17, with the demon-possessed boy that the disciples could not heal, he got angry and said, How long am I going to be with you? If it's an anger against people, then it's sin. Okay, so when you're, whenever you're angry against other people, that's sin. But if it's an anger against evil, don't lose that kind of anger. We always need to keep the anger against evil, against darkness, against the devil. Don't let the sun go down on it. Ephesians 4.27 says to not give any place or opportunity to the devil. The moment we stop being angry at him or at sickness and lack, we give place to it and opportunity to it in our lives. So we need to keep being angry against those things. And what we tolerate, we will accept, as I said it earlier. What we accept will dominate us. And we have to learn to cultivate that type of anger. To not allow ourselves to be dominated by sickness, by lack, by poverty, by anything from the devil. Amen? And now let's move on further and talk about the third point that defines spiritual violence and we are saying it was having tenacity to follow through to fight until the end until you see the results happening in your life and tenacity is a willingness and perseverance to fight defend or obtain for as long as it takes that's tenacity tenacity is equivalent with faith and let's read one passage from luke chapter 18 verses 1 to 8 and the Bible says this, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray 
and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wearies me. She wearies me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Amen. The woman in this passage got what she wanted. Why? How? Because she was tenacious and violent. And notice in verse 8 that Jesus is looking for faith. That woman had faith that came to the judge. She came with faith. And it's not the quantity of faith that matters, the amount of faith. As I said in previous sessions, it's not an amount of faith that matters, but the quality of that faith. And in Matthew uh, chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus said that if we, if we have faith like a master's seed, we will say to any mountain to move and it will move. And he compares our faith with the master's seed. Now, what is so specific about the mustard seed that Jesus compares it to faith? The mustard seed is the smallest, so it's not great in quantity. It's the smallest seed among all the seeds. However, the mustard seed has a quality different from many other seeds on earth. Listen to this. The mustard seeds grow in any climate, any season, hot, cold, dry, or humid. It grows in South Africa, in Alaska, and in any place and with almost any type of soil. It is not affected by disease, nor will it die off during droughts. It is very resilient. That's the word. It's a very resilient seed. Nothing seems to impede the growth of this seed or hinder its tenacious ability to produce a crop anywhere on earth. And it has been even chosen the first plant to be experimentally in, grown in space on the next moon mission. Can you imagine that? The resilience this seed has to grow anywhere, it, no matter if it's hot, cold, humid, drought, if it rains or doesn't rain, it grows and produces a crop. And the master seed just ignores the circumstances and continues on. That's what a mustard seed does. That's the quality of that seed. It just ignores everything. All the circumstances, no matter what comes uh, its way, it just continues on. And the mustard seed is also called a troublesome seed. And I'm certain that many farmers would attest to that fact if you ever grown mustard seed. It is difficult to get rid of it. That's why it's called a troublesome seed. It grows like weeds all over the place and it produces a lot of other seeds. That's how the mustard seed is. That's why Jesus compares it to our faith, because the mustard seed has a certain specific quality. It grows anywhere, and the moment it starts growing, it's hard to get rid of it. It just produces many seeds. And the, our faith is like that. Our faith is supposed to be that tenacious and resilient against circumstances. 
That's how our faith needs to be. That's why Jesus compares it to a mustard seed. When, when I found out that, it just changed my whole, my whole perspective on faith. To hear that my faith has to be tenacious and to pull through until, until I see all the results happening. And whenever I see in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the expression little faith, the Greek term for little faith in Matthew 6.30, uh, 8 verse 26, uh, chapter 14 verse 31, the Greek word is oligopistos and it also means short-lived or weak. That's what means little faith, that word little, oligopistos. It means short-lived or weak. It also refers to duration and intensity besides quantity. And an example here is Peter walking on the water. His faith was little in the sense that it was brief. He stopped believing shortly. He started believing, but then he stopped believing shortly. And little faith, we can say that he had little faith because his faith was short-lived and weak. It was not intense. It, it was not long enough. Amen? And the Greek word for great faith is tosautos, and it means long-lived or strong. Great faith is tenacious faith which starts and refuses to give up until it receives the result. And the expression in the text that we read earlier, continual coming in verse 5, doesn't mean coming and going, coming and going, or asking and begging multiple times. In the Greek, the expression is eistelos erkomai, eistelos erkomai, and it means to come and to be set there until the end. Let me say it again, eistelos erkomai, it means to come at one time and to stay there until the end. You come and you are set. You are settled until the end. The widow didn't come again and again to the judge's door. That's how we understand it, but that wasn't the case. Instead, she planted herself to his door and said, I will not go, not quit, and not stop until I get what belongs to me. That's the quality of faith. That's what Jesus is looking and expecting in us. To have that tenacity and ability to go all the way. Not just coming and going, but come and stand. When you pray, for, when you command sickness to go, from there, from that point onward, you just stand on the word that you said. You don't just come and go. And how do we get that tenacity? Faith is like a muscle. Let's read Luke chapter 17 verse 5 to 10, where it says this. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something from my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. It seems here that the disciples had the same notion of faith in terms of quantity like we do because they asked Jesus to increase their faith. But Jesus again speaks about the resilience of the mustard seed that we just seen. 
You know, when we are born on this earth as human beings, we have an X number of muscles. Everybody has the same number of muscles. But now what is the difference between a bodybuilder and you? That bodybuilder spends a lot of hours in the gym flexing muscles and lifting weights. And he cannot just come to me and lay, lay his hands on me and, and say, I'm giving you my muscles. No, we have to go ourselves to the gym and exercise those muscles in order to get the same, the same muscles and to get the same ability to lift weights and to do more with our muscles. Amen. And the same way is faith. Faith is not increased. Faith is exercised. Nobody can give you faith. Only God can give you a gift of faith. That's true without your cooperation. But he doesn't do that. That's not the rule of thumb. He expects you to exercise your faith in the word and to grow, not to grow the faith, but to grow the tenacity of your faith, to become tenacious and perseverant. And what if that bodybuilder has a car accident and stays in the hospital for six months? What happens with his muscles? No matter how big his muscles are, if he stays for six months in a hospital, those muscles will shrink and get weak. Isn't that right? With our faith is the same thing. We have to see every trial or sickness as an opportunity to exercise our faith and rejoice. That's why the Bible says rejoice in your trials. Because when a sickness comes, when a problem comes, you have an opportunity to lift the weight, to exercise your faith and to, to exercise that tenacity so that you become more tenacious in faith, more persevering when you see the results happening. Amen. And in verse 7 to 10, Jesus seems to change the subject in the passage that we just read, but he's not. When he talks about the servant that goes to the field and then comes back and he doesn't rest, he puts the food to his master. He's still on the same subject and compares our faith with a servant who never rests. Amen? After plowing or tending sheep, then he comes and serves the master with food. He never rests. And in faith, you never stop. You start believing and then you continue. Continual coming. You come and you stay on the word that you, you said or spoke. Amen. So that's what it means to be violent in the spirit. To have a strong conviction about the word of God. To have a, a, an anger against negative situations. And to develop a tenacity of faith. To follow through until the end in the same way the mustard seed has. And it grows wherever it, it disconsiders all the circumstances and just continues on. And it's just a troublesome seed. It just goes everywhere. Your faith needs to be multiplied. And then like that woman from the judge, you come and you stay. You are set until the end. Amen. Now, I think we have time to start off also the next big chapter, chapter 7, where we will talk the, about the main law of the kingdom. And it's along the same lines. We'll talk about faith in the word, but from a different perspective, more focused on how the word, how can we use the word of God to release more of the faith that is in our spirits. And the, uh, the, the Bible passage from where we, will take, where, where we will stay for a while, it's Mark chapter 4, verse 1 to 20. Let's read it together. And again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. 
And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that seeing that may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, Accept it and bear fruit. Some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Amen. Now, traditionally, this parable of the sower has been interpreted as referring mostly to unbelievers who hear the gospel, and the sower is God and believers. I am sowing the word. The word is the gospel that Jesus died for our sin, for their sins. And four times of ground are unbelievers. That's the traditional way how most Christians interpreted this parable. And the fourth category of ground are those unbelievers that receive the gospel and then walk in holiness and in good deeds and doing good deeds. That's how we interpreted most of the time this parable. This interpretation is okay, but this parable refers also to believers. And after you hear what I have to say, you'll actually come to understand that this parable is more addressed to Christians than to unbelievers. We need to understand that as Christians, we're not just saved from hell and that's it. We're waiting for the new heaven and earth. This is like saying that God only delivered the people of Israel from Egypt and said nothing about Canaan. But the main thing was Canaan, not, e not just getting out of Egypt. The main thing, the target, the purpose was Canaan. And our spiritual Canaan is the gospel applied, proved, and functioning here on earth. Because in heaven we will not have giants like the, there were in Canaan. So our spiritual Canaan, which is the target, not just getting out of hell, 
But Canaan, it's the gospel applied, the gospel working, functioning here on earth by healing the sick. That's one example. And this parable is about the word of God. And beginning from verse 13, let's underline everywhere. Let's read it one more time and underline everywhere the phrase, the word or the word here is present. Let's read it again and I'll emphasize from verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Underline that. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word, underline that, is sown. When they hear, underline the word here, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, underline all three words, hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness and they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns, sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word again, accept it and bear fruit. Some 30 fold, some 60 and some 100. Now let's notice a few things in this passage. Everyone from this passage is hearing the word. Have you noticed that? Everyone is hearing the word. Jesus is talking in this parable about people who heard the word. The word came into their ears. And there are four different types of ground. But all those four categories of people heard the word. They all heard the word. Three out of those four categories didn't bear any fruit. That's amazing. So three out of those four categories didn't bear any fruit. That means those three categories of people received zero answers to prayers. Can you imagine that? They were unfruitful, free of out of four. Nothing of what they prayed for came to pass. No result whatsoever. Only the last category of ground, the good ground, the Bible says that had fruit, but even that fruit was in three different levels, 30%, 60%, and 100%. Can you see? Only one category bear fruit, and even that fruit is in three different levels, not, not all of it 100%. Since some were able to bear 100% of fruit from the word of God that comes into our ears, that means it's possible, there's hope there. It's possible to have 100%, 100-fold of fruit from the word of God, to see it fulfilled 100% in your life. And that's possible since it's present here. Furthermore, that means complete fulfillment of what the word of God promises to us. 100% fruit means complete fulfillment of all the promises of God about us in our lives. That's powerful. And the purpose of this parable is to teach us how to be the good ground. 
That's the reason Jesus is saying this parable. He is not teaching it so that we would be the wayside or the thorny ground or the stony ground. He's teaching us how to learn to receive the word of God properly and be able to protect it and let it grow up so that the word of God can bear fruit in our lives. That's the purpose, to be the good ground. Now let's go back to verse 13 that we just read. Jesus always chose his words very carefully. And we need to know that about him. Every word that he said counts. He says this in verse 13. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the other parables? Obviously, Jesus is saying here that this parable is a key cornerstone and pivotal insight to all the other teachings that he gave. It's the key to all the other teachings, to everything that he said. Can you imagine that? This is a crucial hub. He's explaining to us a process which if we miss, then we will misunderstand and misinterpret all the other parables, everything else that he said. So here in this parable, we have a key of how the kingdom of God works, how this process of faith works, how the word coming to us and producing uh, well, 30%, 60%, and 100-fold of fruit. And I believe we'll stop here for today, but in our next session, We'll talk more in depth about this parable and we'll take one by one all these four categories and we'll talk about them and see how the word of God affects us and why those three categories don't produce any fruit and why the fourth category produces interesting things and powerful things. But until we see next time, I pray that God will bless you and will surround you with his favor in the name of Jesus. Amen.